Well, a few weeks ago, we began a new sermon series called Everyday Disciple. And the heart of this series is to look at things that we deal with on an everyday basis. And as we walk through those situations and those places and those relationships, what does it mean to be a disciple in those everyday moments of life? What about your Monday through Friday? What about your nine to five? This time or this uh, thing in our life known as our vocation, what does it mean to be an everyday disciple in those spaces? We're going to look at that a little bit today, and the text that we're going to use to do that is John chapter 13, along with some additional material from Luke chapter 22. It's an episode in the life of Jesus known as the washing of the disciples' feet, and it helps us understand what it looks like to be a servant leader in those spaces. But let me begin by, by telling you about a item of contention in my home, uh, in a closet upstairs in my home is a box, and in this box are several collections of baseball cards. And there are folders with baseball cards in them and, and smaller boxes that have baseball cards lined up in them. Uh, and this box has moved with me uh, five times now, uh, five different homes, four different locations, and um, Whenever that box moves, it goes to a closet, it sits in the closet, and it largely remains untouched, which has prompted my wife to say, why do we have these baseball cards? Can we get rid of them? Why do you force us to carry this box of baseball cards to all the different homes that we move to? And I have said adamantly, no, we cannot get rid of these. This represents about six years of my childhood. Some of the best days of my life was spent going down to the little hobby store, buying a pack of cards, thumbing through the cards, seeing which cubs that I got, and uh, trading them with my friends. From like 1988 to 1994, that was about my era of collecting baseball cards. And before you think that maybe I should go through there and, and see if I could get rich on some of them, there's nothing of value in there because... I, I did what kids do with cards. I looked at them, and I traded them, and I organized them. And so the edges are all frayed, and the corners are dog-eared. It looks like a 10-year-old kid had direct control of this collection of baseball cards, which is probably as it should be. Those 10-year-old kids are now almost 40, and uh, they're spending more money than they should on pieces of cardboard, uh, but that's sort of where we're at. But one of the things that would, would happen as I would trade these with my friends, we would look at the back and we would look at the stats. And we would have discussions over who's the greatest player, who's better than this player. And, and we would actually have the discussion that's kind of common now as you look at professional sports, who's the GOAT? You know what that stands for? It, it sounds like a bad thing, right? It used to be a bad thing if you said, oh man, they're the GOAT. That means they did something terrible. But now it's an acronym. Greatest of all time. Who is the GOAT of hockey? It's Wayne Gretzky. And 95% of the room's like, hockey, who cares, right? But who's the GOAT of hockey? It's Wayne Gretzky, or people would like to debate that. Who's the GOAT of basketball? A little bit more discussion going on around here, but most people are going to lean towards Michael Jordan. Who's the goat of football? Probably Tom Brady, if you just look at a guy with 
seven Super Bowl rings on his hand. Uh, but the undisputed goat of baseball, that's easy. It's the second baseman for the Chicago Cubs, a guy named Ryan Sandberg. We can all agree on that. See, first service didn't get that. I've got sports fans in the house today. You know how ridiculous it is that I would put Ryan Sandberg in the same conversation with those three, but that's how much I love my cubbies. But the greatest of all time is determined by really two things, individual achievement and winning. Did you, what did you accomplish in your career? What stats did you rack up? And did you win? And in the different spheres of life that, that you live and you work in, that is the same scorecard. I mean, we operate with the same scorecard. Every, uh, 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 every way that we might evaluate our, our, our time at work or our time in, in some area where we have influence, it's going to be evaluated by this scorecard. What have I accomplished and am I winning? What have I accomplished, and am I winning? And as you think about the sum total of your life through that scorecard of our world and of our culture, the pressure can be debilitating. To think about always having to perform, to think about always having to accomplish something and to always win, this, this kind of pressure can be debilitating. But it is, it is in every area of our professional life. As you think about your life in business or finance or construction, agriculture, uh, healthcare, even our healthcare professionals, it's great to take care of people, but in taking care of people and keeping them from dying, you better make money in the process. And let's talk about education a little bit. Uh, how many parents got emails from your teachers last month? And it said, make sure your kid goes to sleep on time. We are testing. And if your kid doesn't perform on this test, we're going to lose all of our money. So think about the, the pressure to perform that is applied to all areas of our lives, specifically our professional lives. Did they win? Did they make money? Did they achieve their objectives? And if we're not careful, this scorecard can apply to our lives. We can make that the scorecard with which we judge our lives. So Jesus came proclaiming a kingdom, and in proclaiming this kingdom, what he wants to do is flip the scorecard. In fact, he wants to give us a whole new scorecard. And as we look at John chapter 13, he says this. It really sums up the kingdom of God and sums up what Jesus was about. He's with his disciples. It's the night before he goes to the cross, and he boils it all down for them, and he said, look, guys, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another by this, by this scorecard. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the scorecard for the kingdom. This is the scorecard for the kingdom. This was the heartbeat of what Jesus was about. This was the thing that he wanted them to know about his kingdom. He said in Matthew chapter 22, the law and the prophets hang on love of God and love of neighbor. If we don't get this right, we're not going to get anything else right. 
And so as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is what we have to get right. And if you read the Gospels carefully, it was the thing the disciples consistently got wrong. They consistently missed this, this love for neighbor. This, was, this is what would help the world know that you really are a follower of Jesus if you loved your neighbor. And the disciples missed this several different times, and we're going to talk about that. And so one of the things that Jesus does to make sure they don't miss it, this is the night before he goes to the cross, he wants to make sure they, they, they get this, and so he washes the feet of his disciples. We're going to unpack the significance of that moment, and we're going to do something that we've never done before. We're going to look at a text as a harmony. We're going to smash together two accounts of this moment and look at them as a singular event, which they were, but we're going to take a little bit of what Luke says about this event and then allow, allow it to inform the way John tells this story of the washing of his disciples' feet. John gives us some great details, but Luke gives us some things that help us understand really what was going on in that moment. So, so it'll be difficult for you to follow this in your Bibles. You'll have to flip through Luke 22 and John 13. So what I've done is I've put it all on the screen. So I'm going to read it, and I want you to hear this from Luke and John today. Luke 22 and John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was in process, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest the goat. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place and said, Do you understand what I have done for you? The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and they, those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not like that. Instead, the greatest among you shall be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, 
your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also must wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I hope you see the the beauty of combining these two accounts and allowing Luke and John to tell us this story as, as one event. I can't stress enough that what makes this event so significant is that in just a few hours, Jesus is going to go to the cross. It's the last time he's going to be with his disciples. And he spent three years trying to help them understand that this new kingdom, this kingdom of God that is breaking in, it's a kingdom of love for God and love for neighbor. And that is why John prefaces his account with this just amazing Greek phrase. He says, he, he showed them the full extent of his love. It's not only a preface for the foot washing episode, it's a preface for the entire passion narrative. From the moment Jesus stoops down to wash feet to the moment he breathes his last on the cross, this drama of the cross that's about to unfold, it's prefaced with this statement. Jesus is showing them the full extent of his love. This is everything that it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is just how much God loves the world. And so act one, that is the foot washing. It's going to culminate in the cross. And we certainly put so much emphasis on that moment where Jesus dies, but that was a continuation of this moment where Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. And so the full extent of his love is about to be unfolded, this full picture of just how much God loves the world. And John tells us that something pretty amazing, that here's Judas who's about to betray him, and yet Jesus washes his feet as well. Maybe some of us would have been tempted to skip Judas, knowing what was about to happen. But Jesus washes Judas's feet. But Luke does something very interesting. Where John kind of highlights the failure of Judas, Luke highlights the failure of all of them. And I appreciate that about Luke. Luke tells us that in verse 24 of chapter 22, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was the goat. Which of them was the greatest of all time? Who was with Jesus when he did the most miracles? I mean, who collected the most leftover bread after Jesus fed the 5,000? Who, who, who cast out the most demons when Jesus sent them out with his power to continue his ministry? Who was the greatest of all time among them? What's interesting about this detail that Luke gives us, it happens in Matthew, and it happens in Mark. It's just like almost the same phrase. A dispute broke out among them as to which of them was the greatest. And what's really interesting is Matthew puts it one place, Mark puts it another, and then Luke includes it here at the, at the Last Supper. And so we're left to decide, like, is this one event? that the gospel writers put at different places? Or did it happen so frequently that the gospel writers in telling the story just, man, they just where in the world are we going to put this happened all the time? 
where are we going to put this in the story so that everybody knows that the disciples were always jockeying for who was the greatest among them? And I think it's the latter. I think this just happened so often. They were always trying to get a leg up on one another. They were always trying to determine who was the greatest in this, in this group of 12 that were following Jesus. And, and, and Jesus is saying, this can't be the way, this can't be the way for my disciples to continue on my ministry. For three years now, I've been with them, and they're still fighting over who's the greatest. And Jesus does what great teachers do. You know, I, I know there are some teachers in the room, and, and you know, as you think about your pedagogy and your curriculum, and there's a certain part of that where you explain something to your class. Okay, this is the principle. This is what you need to do. But sometimes it doesn't always click. So you have to do something else. You have to come up with an illustration or you have to come up with something hands-on. You have to show them. So the time for explaining this is over. Jesus, the great teacher, says, okay, let me illustrate this for you. Let me show you what it means to love your neighbor so well that it points them to this infinite love of God. And so he does something that no teacher, no rabbi, no one with Jesus' kind of power and influence had ever done before. It was unheard of. In fact, I read one commentator this week who said, in all of ancient literature, there is not one story of somebody with this kind of power and influence stooping to wash feet. Stooping to, to do something this humble. Even a, a wealthy Jewish person, if they had like slaves or servants, they would never ask a Jewish slave or servant to wash the feet. They would ask a Gentile to do this. It was the lowest of the low tasks. But what Jesus is demonstrating here is that the hospitality of God is wide and is infinite. God is inviting the world into his home. God is inviting the world into his very life. And because we are so dirty, because we are so unworthy to be invited into this relationship, Jesus does what has to be done. Jesus himself stoops to the position of a servant so that all might be invited into this life of God. He shows them what it means to be great in the kingdom. The scorecard has now been flipped. So you can understand Peter's objection. Yeah, Peter's like, what are you doing? No, you're never going to wash my feet. I wonder if Peter thought it was a trick, you know, because washing feet was just so unheard of. Like all those other guys, they're falling for it. They're letting the teacher wash their feet, but I'm not falling for it. Who knows what Peter was thinking but it doesn't surprise me that he's the one with the objection. And Jesus explains to him, no, this is how you participate in this new kingdom. This is how you participate in this new kingdom. And, and John tells us that, that Jesus does this as an example. And he uses this interesting Greek word. It's called hypodigme. And it shows up a few times in the first century, but it, it actually doesn't show up a lot in the New Testament. But when it shows up in ancient literature, it is used as uh, uh, an example, uh, an exemplary performance, something that is done, even, even something that might result in someone losing their life for some greater cause. 
John uses this word to say Jesus is giving the ultimate example of, of what it looks like to, to love others in this kingdom of God. And Jesus is not only willing to illustrate this by the act of washing feet, but he will even lay down his own life as a demonstration of God's love, as an example of the kinds of life's lives that we should live. And then the heart of this whole episode, everything that the foot washing story is about is summed up with this. Jesus says to his disciples, do as I have done for you. Do as I have done for you. It was not only a, a, this, a, a command to, to the physical act of washing feet. It was a command to live in ways in which you love others more than you love yourself, even to the point of death. Even if it costs you that which is most precious and dear to you, love others. Love others selflessly and sacrificially. And he goes on to say, I've been sent by the Father to show you this. In the book of John, we're going to see this 35 times where Jesus says, I'm sent by the Father. And then after the resurrection, he gathers with the disciples and he says, as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you, church, what is it that we are being sent to do? What is it that we are being sent to proclaim to the world? That, that God loves the world unconditionally, that God is willing to lay down the life of his one and only son, that God stoops to wash feet. And so now the body of Christ, the church filled with the spirit, sent by the father, we also love sacrificially. We also are willing to lay our lives down for the sake of others. And you know, church, I don't think the world is impressed by our power. I don't think the world is impressed by our prestige or by our honor. I don't think the world is impressed when we coerce and we force our will, and we force our agenda because we, we can. I don't think the world finds that compelling. What did Jesus say in, in verse 34? The world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is what the world will find compelling. This will draw people into this heart of God. And just as God has graciously welcomed us around his table, even stooping to wash our dirty feet, even laying down the life of his one and only son, he invites us to go and to stand in the crossroads of the world and to lay our lives down for the love and for the sake of our neighbor and to invite them in and to practice hospitality and to say, the table is set. It costs God his very life. And you are welcome to come. This is what the world will find compelling. And it happens when we shift the focus from me to you. Think about that shift in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We shift from a focus on me to a focus on others. Last summer, I was with my family on vacation, and we were hanging out at the pool, just taking it easy one afternoon. And a guy came down with his family, and 
It looked like he had on his agenda the same thing we had on our agenda. We're just going to hang out by the pool and take it easy. And he was wearing a t-shirt that, I'll never forget this t-shirt. I, I, I guess I read too much into t-shirts and bumper stickers. But, but, but one of the reasons I just get fixated on t-shirts and bumper stickers is because it's like, if you put a phrase or a slogan or something on your t-shirt, I mean, you were saying, like, this is the card I lead with. If you go to my closet, you're going to find all kinds of Chicago Cubs shirts. I don't mind leading with that card. I'm proud to be a fan of the Chicago Cubs. And so this guy was leading with this phrase and this slogan on his T-shirt. And here's what it said. This is how he makes first impressions. It said, my rights don't end where your feelings begin. It's nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you, sir. I can tell that we are not going to be friends. In fact, I don't know if you have any friends at all, if that's the card you lead with. Like, my rights don't end where your feelings begin. Like, what is he saying by that? He's saying, I have rights I'm entitled to certain things. I've earned these things. They're mine. And you may be offended by them. It may hurt your feelings. But it's my right. And I can say it. I can do it. I can exert it. I can exploit it. And if you're hurt in the process, that's not my problem. Because my rights don't end where your feelings begin. And I would just say this, like if you have that t-shirt, uh, and if you wear it, and if someone asks you where you go to church, tell them you go to church at, well, I was going to name some other church in our community, but, but, but I won't do that. But here's what you can't say. Do not tell them you go to Bentonville Community Church. Because that's not what it means to follow Jesus. Is anyone going to know that you're a disciple of Jesus because you exploit your rights? Is anyone going to know that you're a follower of Jesus because you get all that you're entitled to? Is anyone going to know that you're a follower? Are they going to be compelled to join with God at the table of grace because you have gone through life getting all that you deserve? and stepping over whoever you want, and you don't care about other people's feelings in the process, is that how people are going to know that God has prepared a table of grace and all are welcome at that table? Is that the card we lead with in the world? No, it's not. And so Jesus shows us what it looks like to shift the focus of our life from me to, to you. Two of my favorite pastors, uh, are David Drury and Steve Deneff. And they wrote a book called Soul Shift. And in this book, they talk about this shift from me to you. And they write this, and I want to read this passage for you. Jesus sends us into the boardrooms where people haggle over power, into the families where the trust has been destroyed by broken promises, and into the boroughs of cities where people are wrapped up in their addictions. Jesus points us toward the last vestiges of racism and unemployment, where men and women have been robbed of their dignity, 
to the nursing homes where those who no longer seem useful to society are now marginalized, or to the hospitals where patients sit quiet and afraid. He calls us to look into the hearts of such people and see the kingdom. What are their true needs? What help is still available to them? What is God's dream for them? God's dream for you is to dream for them more than yourself. To act in such a way that their needs are met before your own. To be so selfless as to help before you hoard. He wants you to entertain others rather than yourself. To move from me to you. Why? Because your love for God is no greater than your love for others. Let's let that sink in. Because I believe it's absolutely true. The Bible teaches that it's true. Your love for God will never be greater than your love for others. In the book of 1 John, we read that you cannot say that you love God and hate your brother or your sister. There is a direct proportion between your love for God and your capacity or willingness to love others. As your love for others shrinks or is limited, it will also stunt your love for God. Now that's the bad news. But here's some incredibly good news about this principle we see in Scripture is that as your love for others expands and grows, it infinitely and exponentially increases your love for God. There's this amazing thing that happens when we selflessly lay down our lives and when we make room in our heart for others, we experience more of God's depth and more of God's love and more of God's joy and our relationship with God becomes richer and deeper and fuller. And it's not because we memorize more scripture or spent more time in prayer, although those things are certainly part of it. But when our heart is expanded and when we lay down our rights and when we live in ways that are selfless in the world, we come into this deeper, richer, fuller understanding of who God is and the kind of love that we can have for Him. And we become acquainted with just how much He loves us. And so your love for God will never be greater than your love for others. As you love others more, you will love God for more. This is a different scorecard, isn't it? It's a different scorecard. And so I I want us to think about how this works out in our daily lives. We spend so much time at work. We spend so much time in this web of relationships that that are known as our daily vocation. And, And if you're retired today or if you're not in an office setting or in some work setting or part of some team, this still applies to the the ways that we have influence in the world, the the spheres of influence that we live in. I want us to, to think about those spaces that we inhabit. And I want us to think about how living this way, following this example of Jesus, can transform and make those spaces places where God's kingdom breaks in. There's a, if you Google servant leadership, you're going to be introduced to a, a writer, 
a pretty special person who wrote a really amazing book called Servant Leadership. His name is Robert Greenleaf. And, and I, I really resonate with a lot of what he says. But if you Google him, Google will tell you that the father of servant leadership is Robert K. Greenleaf. And I looked into that a little bit this week and began to learn a little bit more about this book and, and how it's been, the principles have been used to transform business, to transform education, to transform organizational management. And it's pretty amazing. You know, this principle where the leader at the top refuses to exploit certain rights or refuses to coerce people into certain things, but leads as a servant, it produces amazing results. And so Greenleaf documents this, and of course, anything that produces results, we're going to grab onto. And the book became wildly popular. Thus, now he's the father of servant leadership. But can I offer just a corrective today? As, as great as Greenleaf is, he's not the father of servant leadership. The father of servant leadership is right here in John 13 and Luke chapter 22. Where Jesus demonstrates for us the heartbeat of what it means to be a servant leader. He demonstrates for us what it means to be a servant leader. And what's interesting, as if we will follow this way in our professional lives, it is amazing how God blesses that and how God uses that. If we will go into these professional settings and these organizational settings with a different scorecard, and it, and it may be different than the scorecard that you're, you're used to operating with in those settings, But what if we gave God a chance to break into those settings and to break into those organizational structures and to flip the scorecard and to say, in this moment, in this influence that I have, I'm going to be a servant leader. I'm going to love like Jesus loves. That's a tall order, isn't it? Because I know that in every sector of our professional lives, you have tough decisions to make. You've got to decide who gets fired you got to decide where resources go. Something terrible happened, and you have to decide who's responsible and who's getting fired. You have tough decisions to make every day. Does it mean you just, you just take the blame for everything? Just, that's not what, that's not what this, this passage is teaching us. This passage is teaching us to do as I have done. That's what Jesus says. And so how is it that Jesus lived this out in his life? And here's three principles of servant leadership. And this isn't from Greenleaf. This is from Jesus. Three principles of servant leadership that can guide your decisions. The first is every decision Jesus made was based on truth. It was based on truth. Jesus said the truth will set you free. And so Jesus navigated tough and difficult decisions but he never misrepresented himself or he never lied to cover something up. He always operated in the truth. And so as we make tough decisions, we have to be people of integrity. We have to be people of honesty. And truth has to guide those decisions. But the second thing you see in the life of Jesus is justice. What's fair? What's equitable? What's right? What is the right thing to do 
in this situation, even if it adversely affects me. Justice. People of truth, people of justice. But finally, in every decision Jesus made, in the example that he leaves for us, he was guided by love. Selfless love. Love that lays down one's rights. And so as leaders in these situations, we have to ask ourselves, does this decision only affect me and benefit me? Or am I being called to make a decision in this situation for someone else that benefits someone other than myself? I think that's what we need to be aware of as we navigate the very tricky world of our vocations that we live in. And I will tell you this, this is the little caveat. If you want to be the greatest of all time, if you want to have your name up in lights, this is a bad recipe for that. You're not going to be the goat by following these principles of servant leadership. This is not a recipe to be the greatest of all time. This is, however, who Jesus calls us to be. He doesn't call us to be the goat. The good shepherd invites us to be his sheep. His sheep who follow after him, who walk in obedience. And so, friends, let's flip the scorecard today. Instead of looking at your life as, what have I accomplished and am I winning? Let's ask ourselves this today. What is it that Jesus has done? What is it that Jesus has done in laying his life down for me and for the sake of the world? And am I following that example every day? As I live and lead at work, as I live and lead in spheres of influence, am I following that example every day? Am I a leader of truth, justice, and love?